I've got a five-year-old and a three-year-old. Uh, and rest has been much harder to find uh, on the physical front. But uh, what I'm talking about really is a deeper kind of rest that this passage calls rest for our souls. Uh, that kind of deep, existential, emotional, psychological uh, rest for our souls. That kind of rest, I have to say, has been relatively rare for me. Uh, by nature and probably by nurture, I have a, a tendency, a deeply ingrained tendency, to be restless, to be unsettled. Uh, even to be worried and anxious about life. And in different seasons of my life, that has been a real burden to me. A real burden. If I'm honest, it's just left me feeling exhausted at times. And over the years, I've realized that much of the stress and anxiety in my life uh, comes about because of my desire to prove myself. Uh, to prove myself to God, to others, uh, even to myself, perhaps. Uh, that's a, a really deeply ingrained tendency in my life. Uh, uh, to be honest, I never really felt I could get my dad's approval, uh, even though we really love one another, a like good relationship, but it was, it was hard to get dad's approval. Uh, and since then, I've often slipped into living for the approval of others, uh, anxious uh, about what people think of me, whether people like me, whether people think I'm doing a good job at things. Uh, and perhaps some of you resonate, right? You know that that's a really exhausting way to live. To feel like you're stuck on a, on a never-ending treadmill of trying to prove yourself to others. So for me, the passage we're looking at today has always been a, a real breath of fresh air. I come back to it often, particularly uh, Jesus' invitation from verse 28 where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Right, That's me. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, my, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I read that and I know that I, so often I'm burdened and weary and I need this rest that Jesus offers. I need it. And I suspect that many of you need it too. So how is it that we can accept and experience this rest uh, that Jesus offers us? I think we see three main things in verses 25 to 30. We're going to start with that second half of the passage. First in verses 25 and 26, uh, we see that we can accept Jesus' invitation to rest by embracing grace. Uh, from verse 25, you see there, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, uh, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So Jesus, God's son, he starts by uh, saying a prayer of thanks to his father in heaven. Uh, but the, what he's thankful for is really quite odd, isn't it? He says uh, he's thankful that his father has hidden these things from the wise and learned. Right? These things there uh, must be the good news of who Jesus is and what he came to do, the good news of his kingdom. So Jesus says he's thankful, filled with praise, that his father has hidden this good news from the wise and learned. Why would he say that? Uh, of course, in saying that, Jesus is not saying that no one intelligent or wise and learned can become a Christian. Well, sure, you can be a Christian. You just have to take your brain out and stop thinking before you become a Christian. That's what lots of people think, Right? But he's just saying that the good news of who he is and what he has done uh, can't be discovered, uh, discovered by proudly depending on our own intellect and wisdom. But if it could, God's kingdom would not be about how wise he is, but about how wise you are. 
It wouldn't be about how great God is, but about how great you are. It wouldn't be about how amazing God's grace is, right? You, you might know that song, Amazing Grace, right? but it wouldn't be about that. It, would, it wouldn't be about you getting what you deserve for your wisdom and, and learnedness. No, it'd be about how amazing your intelligence is. Right? Not about God's grace, but about you and what you have done with your great intellect and wisdom. In that system, only the wisest and smartest and most intelligent could be a part of God's kingdom. Well, that would not do. So Jesus says, I praise you, Father, that the good news of your kingdom is about grace. It's not about depending on ourselves and our works and goodness and wisdom. It's about depending on God, on his works, on his goodness, on his wisdom. So you see that next sentence, I praise you, Father, that you've revealed these things to little children. Not to the wise and learned, but to little children. Once again, Jesus is not saying that only people who are childish or naive or immature can be Christians. Like little children, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying that if you want to be a Christian, you have to be humble enough to completely depend on God. Like a little child is completely dependent on their parents. So Jesus' point here is that you can't work your way into God's kingdom through your own wisdom or intelligence or cleverness. But none of us can prove ourselves to God in that way. Let's face it, we can't really even prove ourselves to others in that way. You might be here, you might be someone who's extremely intelligent. But really, there's always going to be someone who's more intelligent, who's more wise, who's smarter than you. So how do you know if you're ever wise enough for God? Or perhaps you're really wise in one particular part of your life, your career. You just nail it there. But in these other parts of your life, you keep making foolish decisions. Relationships, finances, whatever it is. So praise God that being a part of his kingdom is not about us proudly depending on our wisdom. Because if it was, we would all fail. We'd mess it up. But it's not about us. It's about us humbly depending on God and on his grace. That's the first thing, right? Where we can accept Jesus' invitation to rest by embracing grace. The second thing in verse 27 uh, is that we can accept Jesus' invitation to rest by knowing him. Uh, Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Uh, All things there is probably the same thing as these things in verse 25, right? The good news of who Jesus is and what he came to do. right? And so Jesus is uh, saying uh, that no one knows the Son, right? That's Jesus, God, the Son in human form. He says, no one knows the Son uh, except the Father. Now, if you're familiar with Matthew's Gospel, even if you're not, it's clear that at this point, most of the Jews are rejecting Jesus. They've really got no idea of the significance of who Jesus is. They don't know the Son. That's part of Jesus' point. But another aspect of his point is that Jesus' disciples, who've actually made the call to follow him, still haven't joined all the dots about who Jesus is. You see that repeatedly throughout Matthew's Gospel. They don't know the Son. That's Jesus' point. Only God, his Father, knows him completely. There's this unique relationship between them. 
And perhaps even more shocking, it's that Jesus says it's the same in reverse. No one knows God the Father except the Son. Imagine you're a Jewish person listening to Jesus, right? They've got the whole Old Testament. They've known this God for centuries. Jesus says, no, 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 you don't know God. But his knowledge of God, God the Father, surpasses anything that has become before because he knows his Father completely. And so he says the only people who can truly know God are those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It's all about Jesus. It's a radical claim. If you want to know God, you must know Jesus. That's what he's saying. God himself, he's saying. Uh, He is God himself in human form. If you see him, you see God. If you know him, you know God. So what do we do with that kind of radical claim? Uh, Really, what we can't do is say, this is what lots of people do, but you know, what, we, what we can't do is say, well, you know, I've got a lot of respect for Jesus. Uh, I really liked his teaching, you know, love your neighbor and, and do unto others as you have done unto you. Yeah, that, that's, that's all good. Uh, but let's not get hung up on the dogma. I don't, I don't want to take too seriously this idea that Jesus is God. Well, we just can't say that but because Jesus' claim here really doesn't give us that option. In fact, it really only gives us two options. Uh, first, we can either say, uh, we can say that Jesus is a lunatic. Right? Because anyone who goes around claiming that you can only know God through knowing them must be crazy. That's what we'd think today, right? Lunatic. Or we could say that Jesus is a liar. Right? He's making this claim, uh, and in the process, he's deceiving billions of people, committing this massive fraud. Or we could say that Jesus is Lord. He is who he says he is, God himself in human form. Uh, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a great section about this. Uh, he, he says this. Uh, he's he's fairly, fairly pointed. <clears throat> uh, I'm trying to prevent here anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. What's his foolish thing? I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Uh, He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut Jesus up for a fool, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. It's a radical claim that Jesus makes in this verse. We can accept Jesus' invitation to, to experience this wonderful rest by knowing him. But not even just knowing him in general. But knowing him as the one and only Son of God, God himself in human form. A third, uh, we can accept Jesus' invitation to rest by coming to him, in particular coming to him to both serve him and learn from him. Uh, In verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That, That really wonderful invitation. And notice how it connects with verse 27. 
because really it's a very exclusive invitation. Jesus says, come to me. Not come to Buddha or to Muhammad or to the self-help aisle at the local bookshop. Right? Come to me, he says. Because he knows that true spiritual knowledge and rest is only found in knowing him. Come to me. It's an exclusive invitation. It's also very inclusive. Because anyone can come to Jesus. Absolutely anyone who's weary and burdened can come to Jesus. It doesn't matter what gender or age or class or sexuality or ethnicity or level of intelligence. Absolutely anyone who is feeling burdened and weary can come to Jesus and experience this rest. And Jesus says that if we do come to him, he will give us rest. And now we think about rest, we usually think about doing absolutely no work. We work during the week, then we rest on the weekends. No work. That's not the rest that Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about stopping work altogether, because notice what he says next. He says in verse 29, if you want this rest, you have to take up a yoke, his yoke. Doesn't sound very restful, right? Uh, A yoke, you put on a yoke in these days if you're going to plough a field or, or pull a wagon along. It's a tool for working. So Jesus is saying that this rest is found not, not in stopping work, but in working differently. Right? Working alongside him, serving him, rather than serving someone or something else. And perhaps you say, but, but I'm not serving anything. You're already talking about us serving someone, serving something. Oh, if that's you, let me quote the words of that great prophet, uh, Bob Dylan. You know, Bob Dylan... Uh, He once said, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You know the song? I'm not going to sing it. You may be like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But what's the next line? But you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan got it. He got it. He understood that God has made all of us to serve someone or something. There's no way out of it. All of us are hardwired by God to be yoked to someone or something. And Jesus is saying here that if you yoke yourself to anyone or anything else, it will leave you burdened and weary. Anyone or anything else that you choose to serve, that you choose to yoke yourself to, will be a harsh and demanding taskmaster. I like my slave master of approval. I know, proving myself to God, to others, to myself. Approval is a harsh slave master. Approval stands over the top of me saying, you know, perform this piece, write this essay, win this match, uh, ace this exam, preach this sermon, lead this ministry, plant this church, be this husband, be this incredible father, Right? Be, be this pastor. Meet this standard. Constantly driving me with demands. And maybe if I tick every box, meet every expectation, maybe, just maybe, I'll be somebody. I'll be worthwhile. I'll have proved myself. That's what it's like with everything else that we serve. All our other masters are harsh and demanding. They leave us feeling weary and burdened. That is what Jesus is saying. But he says, that's not me. Look, he says, I am gentle. Not harsh, gentle and humble in heart. 
But he said, oh, I'm not a master who will proudly stand over you making demands. Right? Oh, I'm a master who will get so low that I'll give my life for you on the cross. So if you're going to serve someone, why not serve Jesus? Jesus says that serving him, being yoked to him, will give us rest. What exactly is Jesus' yoke? Well, it's his teaching. Notice what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's about teaching. The Jewish people used to think of God's law as a yoke. They talk about that. It was like a burden that they had to keep, that they had to follow. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from my teaching and you'll find rest for your souls. So what makes Jesus' teaching different to the teaching of the Jewish leaders? Why is it so restful? After all, look in verse 30. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Well, later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says in, in chapter 23, he says that the Pharisees, right, that the, uh, the, the leaders uh, of God's people who are experts in his law, are the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus says the Pharisees tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on people's shoulders. But they themselves, Jesus says, were not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus is saying, that is the difference between their yoke and my yoke, their teaching and my teaching. Now, the Pharisees do absolutely nothing. Right? Don't even lift a finger to lighten the load of God's law on people's backs. So they load people up with all the demands of God's law, every single expectation and more stuff that they've even invented. Right? They load people up with that and they don't even lift a finger to ease that load. And Jesus knows that it leaves people burdened and weary. Burdened by their sin, by their guilt, by their shame. As they're constantly reminded that they fail to live up to God's law, to God's expectations. And this is the wonderful news. This is why Jesus is the master that you should serve, that you should learn from. Because ultimately Jesus not only lifts a finger to ease our load, Jesus lifts up a cross to ease our load. That's the point, isn't it? He lifts up a cross to lift the ultimate burden off our backs. The burden of having to prove ourselves to God. The burden of our guilt and shame and failure. This is what's so restful about following Jesus. This is why people like Andy can say it was liberating to understand this. It was liberating for me. But I discovered that in coming to Jesus, I no longer had to prove myself to God by doing all the right things because Jesus did all the right things. Jesus is the perfect one, not me. In coming to Jesus, I understood that I don't have to live my life burdened by guilt and shame and failure because I, because I don't do all the right things, because Jesus died the death of a guilty and shameful person in my place. He bore the burden that I deserve on the cross. He lifted it off. And so when I trust in him, in coming to him, I can truly rest, knowing that in him I'm completely accepted by God. The burden of my sin and shame is lifted off. I have the approval of God. I'm loved by God. And frankly, knowing that I've got God's approval has meant that over time, 
I care a whole lot less about your approval, which is wonderful. It's really liberating to walk into a room and not be completely consumed by what other people think of me. That's the kind of rest Jesus is promising. We can accept Jesus' invitation to rest, three things, embracing grace, knowing him, and by coming to him to serve him and learn from him. A wonderful invitation. Uh, Of course, some people tragically reject this invitation. That's the first half of the passage. Where in one sense, we we see three big excuses for rejecting Jesus' invitation. The first excuse is there in verse 20. It's uh, the person who says, look, I I would accept Jesus' invitation, but he just, he just hasn't shown himself to me, right? He hasn't done any miracles before me. Of course, what we see in verse 20 is that even people who saw Jesus do lots of miracles rejected him. Look there. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Jesus did powerful miracles in these towns, giving sight to the blind, uh, uh, hearing to the deaf, food to the hungry, even life to the dead, yet people didn't repent. They still rejected him. Uh, Of course, to repent is not just to feel bad about something, like we all feel bad about stuff. Uh, It's not even just to say sorry. I said this to my kids. I said to my son Charlie, I said, when you say sorry, when you repent, it's not just saying sorry so you can keep on doing the same thing to your sister, you know. Like, if you're really sorry... You stop doing it. That's repentance. It's a complete change. The whole orientation of your life, that's repentance. To stop living as if you or someone else is the master of your life and live with Jesus as the master of your life. That's repentance. And maybe if you saw Jesus do some miracles, you might be drawn to him or intrigued by him. You might even be amazed by him. Plenty of of these people were in that camp but you wouldn't necessarily repent. You wouldn't necessarily accept his invitation. And then in verses 21 and 22, where we've got the second excuse, which I would say is the person who says, look, I would accept Jesus' invitation. It sounds kind of nice, wonderful. Wouldn't it be nice to be in this place of rest and peace? But I'm just not religious, you see. Never been a part of my life. I mean, in verses 21 and 22, we see that even cities that were extremely religious, right, very good and moral cities, they rejected Jesus' invitation. Have a look there. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And now we don't know a whole lot about these four towns, but what we do know is that Chorazin and Bethsaida were predominantly Jewish villages. Right? They believed in God and were kind of serious about living his way. And Tyre and Sidon were predominantly Gentile villages. Right? They were well known for rejecting God and his ways. And of course Jesus is grieved by the fact that all these cities have rejected him. So all of them are going to be judged, right? I'm not not trying to skim over that. But notice verse 22. Jesus says that the Jewish cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, are going to be judged much more severely than Tyre and Sidon. 
Because even though they saw Jesus' miracles and heard his teaching and, at least on the surface, seemed to be very moral and religious and respectable people, they still rejected Jesus. So don't come up with the excuse that you can't accept Jesus' invitation because you're not religious. But religious people are experts at rejecting Jesus. Started right here. And they reject Jesus because of the third excuse in verses 23 and 24, which is that they think they really don't need Jesus. Have a look there in verse 23. Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. And now, in some ways, the point of these verses is really the same as verses 21 and 22. You've got that contrast between Sodom, a city that's kind of notorious for being sinful, and Capernaum, which is actually a city that Jesus called his home. You'd think that they would be quite receptive to Jesus. But no, they also rejected Jesus. And I think the reason they rejected Jesus is hidden in Jesus' question at the start of verse 23. Jesus says, Are you Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? You see, that's what the people of Capernaum thought was going to happen on the day of judgment. Right, God, the day of judgment would roll up and God would look at Capernaum and just think, Man, you guys are good. You are so pure and holy and righteous. I'm just going to lift you up to be with me. And Jesus says, no. Jesus says, you've rejected me. And so at this point, on the day of judgment, you're not headed up, but down. That's what Jesus says. So I guess I'm saying, if you sit here today feeling burdened and weary... Maybe you even often feel anxious and worried and, uh, and kind of, uh, yeah, just really heavy laden with all the demands of your life. But if that's you, please don't reject Jesus' invitation. You might not be ready to accept it altogether. But don't just reject it. And don't make excuses. Well, let me urge you to come to Jesus, to serve Jesus, to learn from Jesus. And I can vouch for the fact that if you do that, you'll find rest for your soul. Andy and Martine talked about that today as well. Uh, let me pray, and then maybe we'll sing. Uh, gracious Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it does speak so clearly to the realities of our life. Uh, where so often we are weary and burdened. Uh, we feel weighed down by all the different demands and expectations in our lives, our work, our family, our marriages, our studies. Our Father, we can feel burdened and weary. I pray that this day we might come to our Lord Jesus and experience what it is to have that ultimate burden lifted off. No more sin and guilt and shame, but knowing that we're loved and accepted by you, our loving Heavenly Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.